Section 21 of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1, by Charles F. Horn. Section 21. Godfrey de Bouillon, by Henry G. Hewlett. 1060 to 1100. In the year 1094, the Turks besieged the holy city of Jerusalem, then ruled by the Fatimite caliphs, and took it. Pilgrims were then subjected to every form of violence and insult. The Greek emperor Alexius Comnius, whom the Turks had recently defeated, implored the assistance of the great Christian states against this new and formidable foe. Pope Urban, to whom the letter was addressed, summoned a council of nobles and prelates in Auvergne, and, with solemn and weighty words, appealed to the princes and soldiers of France who were seated before him. He reminded them of the national exploits of their fathers, whom Charles Martel and Charlemagne led against the Saracens, and called on the sons of such fathers to achieve yet greater deeds. As the burning words dropped from his lips, they lighted a flame in every heart, and the whole assembly suddenly rose and shouted with one voice, It is God's will! It is God's will! Urban caught up the cry, Yes, without doubt, it is God's will. He has dictated to you the words, Let them be your war cry, and be this your badge. As he spoke, he held up a crucifix. The great meeting was moved like one man, and, falling on their knees, all confessed their sins, received absolution, and took vows of service in the holy war. A red cross, embroidered on the right shoulder, was a common sign assumed by all the soldiers, who thence acquired the name of Crusaders. Estates were pawned and sold to obtain money for the expenses of the undertaking, and many commercial cities purchased important liberties from their lords at this favorable opportunity. The chief of one of three great divisions into which the Christian army was formed was a man whom we have taken as the very type and model of a true crusader, Godfrey de Bouillon. He was the son of Gustavus, Count of Bouillon, or Bologne, in the district of Ardennes and province of Luxembourg, and was born about the year 1060. His profession had been, from his youth, that of arms, and his earliest services in the field were rendered to his lord, the Emperor of Germany. In the war of investiture he had taken an active part against Gregory VII, and bore the imperial standard at the Battle of Merseburg. By his hand the usurper, Rudolf, Duke of Swabia, fell in that decisive encounter. Godfrey's sword, swayed by his young and powerful wrist, is said to have shorn off the right arm of Rudolf at a single stroke. For this valiant deed, Henry IV created Godfrey Duke of his province of Bouillon, or, according to some historians, Lower Lorraine. At the subsequent siege of Rome, Godfrey made himself again prominent by scaling the city walls among the first. This action colored his whole life. All his contemporaries portray his nature as displaying the loftiest integrity and deepest piety. Sound and clear as his intellect was, he yet shared in the superstition of his times, and was led by reflection to believe that, in bearing arms against God's vicegerent, and attacking a city where so many apostles and martyrs lay buried, he had been guilty of a heinous sin. Remorse worked on his mind so heavily that he took a vow to join in the crusade from a conviction that his glaring crime could only be blotted out by a heroism equally conspicuous. 
his noble birth and yet nobler character won for him so high a place in the estimation of his fellows that on announcing his intention of undertaking the crusade hundreds flocked to his standard a worthy general truly of soldiers thus ardent in a cause which they deemed divine to the qualities of bodily strength and beauty which in those days were chiefly valued in the head of an army godfrey happily united the more durable strength of intellect and beauty of soul his knightly heart and statesman's mind never ran counter and whatever generous policy the one dictated was carried into effect by the wisdom of the other although averse to distinction it was thrust upon him by the votes of his fellow chiefs and their decision was gladly hailed by the common soldiers who loved godfrey as a father he would not therefore refuse a post of general but applied himself to its duties with activity he first set an example of unselfish zeal to his brother nobles by disposing of his duke for the purpose of his expedition an example faithfully followed by the leading nobility of france and the rhine he then summoned his army to join him in august ten ninety six on the banks of the rivers meuse and moselle at the appointed time a force of eighty thousand foot and ten thousand horse assembled under his banner and set out on its march through germany the two other divisions of the christian army taking a different route on reaching hungary carloman who then ruled that country showed some signs of objection to the passage of so formidable a body remembering the licentious excesses that had been committed by the rabble which followed peter the hermit here godfrey's wisdom was admirably displayed by his firm measures of restraint on the impetuosity of his troops he first proved that they were under the influence of strict discipline then confiding himself to the justice and good faith of carloman he disarmed that monarch's suspicions by frankness and simplicity the result was that instead of opposition the hungarian prince gave him help and escorted the crusaders with a body of cavalry into the territories of greece alexius comnius was by this time alarmed at the eagerness with which the christian states had responded to his appeal for aid against the infidel he mistrusted not without reason the intentions of some of the chiefs of the expedition mere adventurers like the norman bohemond of tarentum for example who was his avowed foe and therefore deemed it politic to guard against danger to himself by demanding homage from all the crusaders who entered his dominions the two other divisions of the christian army were now on their way to constantinople by a different road from that taken by godfrey one of the french nobles the count de vermondois was shipwrecked on the coast of epirus and alexius unjustifiably detained him as a prisoner or hostage for the good faith of the other leaders on learning these tidings godfrey who was now in thrace sent to the emperor requiring the count's release this was not accorded and godfrey therefore treated the country as hostile levying contributions on the people as he marched through the emperor immediately saw his error and promised to grant the count's release on the arrival of the french army this promise satisfied godfrey and his march was once more peaceful the wily emperor in the meanwhile obtained from his prisoner an oath of homage hoping to induce the other crusaders to follow the example godfrey on his arrival at first refused this as unbecoming the rank and character which he bore but finding that the act would appease the jealousies which had already broken out between the greeks and franks and put a check on the schemes of those leaders in the crusading ranks whom alexius especially dreaded he at last consented the other chieftains made a like submission and the sacrifice of pride by healing internal discords served for a season to promote the success of the crusade 
After a sojourn of some time at Constantinople, the crusaders, now formed into one army, crossed the Bosphorus and entered Bithynia. Here the sight of the carnage which the Turks had inflicted on the weak and disorderly body that Peter had led forth stimulated the zeal and indignation of the Christian host. Its passage through the Turkish kingdom of Raum was not unresisted. David, then Sultan, a valiant prince, had already prepared an army and fortified his capital of Nice, a position of great natural strength. The crusaders advanced in excellent order, and, after twice routing the Turkish army of defense, commenced the siege. Godfrey is said to have distinguished himself by a feat of skill on one occasion during this assault. A gigantic Turk, who was a hero of the Muslim army, had greatly harassed the Christians by his wondrous success in the use of a javelin. Having spent his shafts one day, he ascended a tower, and showered masses of rock on the besiegers, whom he at the same time abused and defied to combat. The Christian archers played upon his person without bringing him down, until Godfrey grasped a crossbow and at one shot pierced the giant's heart. The siege lasted seven weeks, and was prosecuted with such vigor and ingenuity by the crusaders that the Turks were on the point of yielding, when Alexius, who had sent a body of Greeks with the army, craftily procured to himself the glory of conquest by instructing his general to intrigue with the enemy secretly and persuade them to yield to his power on condition of protection. The Greek general so worked upon the fears and hopes of the garrison that his advice was accepted, and to the surprise and anger of the Franks, the emperor's flag one day appeared on the towers of Nice, and the city surrendered. This act of perfidy reopened the jealousy between the eastern and western Christians, which Godfrey had labored to extinguish, and from this time may be dated the rise of those internal divisions which eventually proved so fatal to the crusaders. Leaving Nice, the crusaders advanced in two divisions, both without guides, and through a hostile and desert country. The Turks, in great numbers, followed in their rear. Godfrey and the Count of Toulouse headed one division, Bohemond, Prince of Tarentum, and Robert, Duke of Normandy, son of William the Conqueror, the other. The latter body had separated from the former at some distance, and was traversing the plains near Dorleum in Phrygia, when a sudden attack was made upon it by a powerful army of Turks. The Christians were taken by surprise, while exhausted with heat and fatigue, and in an unfavorable situation. In spite of the heroic valor of Bohemond, Robert, and other knights, the battle was turning against them, when Godfrey's division, to which a message had been dispatched, came up. He shouted aloud the crusaders' war cry, It is God's will! And the whole army, echoing the shout by a gallant charge, retrieved the fortunes of the day, and completely routed the Turks. After this success, the crusaders resolved to march in a single body, and thus prevent a recurrence of the hazard which they had escaped. The Turks preceded them, burning the crops as they went, and the Christians, in consequence, suffered fearful privations from famine during the march. Hundreds perished from exhaustion. The horses died for want of sufficient food and water, and knights were seen either walking on foot or riding on oxen and asses, carrying their own armor. In passing through Pisidia, an anecdote is related of Godfrey, which is characteristic of his courage and gallantry. He was wandering among the recesses of a forest in pursuit of game, which was needed for the supply of the troops, when he came upon a private soldier of the army who was defending himself from the attack of a bear. Godfrey struck at the beast, which at once turned on its new assailant, inflicting a deep wound in his thigh. Another stroke from the skillful hunter's arm terminated the contest, 
but the blood streamed from his wound so rapidly that he scarcely reached the camp alive. The grief of his soldiers was intense as they beheld their beloved leader stretched on a litter and borne into his tent as if dead. The skill of his physicians and a long interval of rest triumphed over the weakness occasioned by the loss of blood, and Godfrey once more appeared at the head of his army. Antiochetta, the capital of Pisidia, attempted no resistance, and here the main body of the Christians recruited for some time. Meanwhile, a party of crusaders, headed by Baldwin, brother of Godfrey and a famous knight named Tancred, had been sent forward to clear a passage for the army. Tancred subdued the city of Tarsus, but his victory was usurped by Baldwin, whose ambitions and covetous nature bore no resemblance to that of his brother. Tancred, a man after Godfrey's heart, surrendered this conquest for the sake of peace. But when Baldwin showed symptoms of repeating his injustice, resisted by force, Tancred was defeated, but a reconciliation took place between the combatants. Baldwin, who had no real interest in the success of the crusade, soon afterwards turned aside into Mesopotamia, where he made himself master of Edessa, and formed a Christian state there. Though founded by merely personal ambition, this eventually proved of great assistance to the crusaders by checking the progress of the Turkish arms in Asia. The main body now crossed the Taurus, after a tedious and painful passage, and presented itself before the walls of Antioch, then ruled by an independent Turkish emir named Axion. The city was especially dear to the Christians as the first in which their title had been assumed, and the sight of its walls roused their flagging spirits. Some of the generals advised that the siege should be deferred for some months until reinforcements arrived and the winter was over, but the majority of the chiefs, among whom Godfrey was conspicuous, confident of success and dreading the depressing influences of delay, urged an immediate attack, which was accordingly made. The Turks adopted the stratagem of apparently neglecting to defend the city, and the Christians, falling into the snare, scattered their forces. The licentiousness of some of their number, moreover, proved fatal to their vigilance, and a sudden sortie of the garrison inflicted deadly havoc. The siege was then commenced in earnest, but the city was so strongly guarded that months elapsed without any impression being made upon its walls, and disease, famine, and the inclemency of the season, united with the missiles of the Turks to weaken the Christian force. Many of the leaders, Robert, Duke of Normandy among them, withdrew in cowardly disgust at the failure of the siege and the pressure of want, while despair drove many of those who remained to courses of reckless vice. Godfrey, firm to his duty and strong in faith, aided the exertions of the clergy in encouraging the spirits of his troops and restraining their profligate excesses. A timely supply of provisions from some of the Armenian monasteries and a brilliant victory obtained by Bohemond and the Count of Toulouse over an army which the sultans of Aleppo and Damascus had sent to the succour of Antioch rewarded Godfrey's confidence and infused new vigour into the hearts of his army. This was needed to sustain the brunt of a desperate encounter which shortly afterward took place between the besieged and their besiegers. A reinforcement of Italian crusaders having arrived, it was suddenly attacked by a large Turkish force and thrown into disorder. Godfrey, who had been engaged on the siege, rapidly marshaled his men and fell upon the enemy. A sortie of the garrison was immediately made and a fearful conflict ensued under the walls of the city. The Turks were put to flight with immense loss, and the Christians pursued them up to the very gates. 
in this scene of carnage godfrey's recorded feats of valor approached the incredible his sword clave the stoutest armor asunder at a blow a gigantic arab horseman offered him single combat and broke his shield by way of challenge godfrey rose in his stirrups and smote the arab on the shoulder with such tremendous force as to split his whole body in twain half of which with the head fell into the river orontes while the remainder yet clinging to the terrified horse was carried back into the city notwithstanding all these exploits the turks held out and were only defeated at last by stratagem this was achieved by the skill of bohemond who intrigued with Firus, one of the leaders of the garrison for the surrender of the city upon favorable terms to himself bohemond stipulated with his fellow chiefs that the principality of antioch should be granted him in return for his services and after some opposition this was conceded Firus managed the perilous task of admitting the crusaders with the utmost adroitness at the dead of night the walls were scaled by bohemond and his followers and antioch was taken in june ten ninety eight after a siege of eight months axion its prince and six thousand turks are said to have fallen on this eventful night the crusaders had no sooner obtained the signal success than they were in their turn besieged by an army raised by the sultans of mosul and other cities antioch had just sustained so long a siege that the christians found scarcely any provisions on their entrance and their besiegers now cut off all supplies from without famine soon raged in the city to such an extent that horses roots leaves leathern shoes and even human bodies were eagerly devoured by the starving soldiers godfrey shared his scanty meals with his comrades and is related to have slain his last charger for food desertion from the ranks now occurred in great numbers and despair led many to blaspheme who were ashamed to fly to add to the misery of the christians they learned that the emperor alexius who was advancing with reinforcements had judged their case hopeless and retraced his steps the city was now scarcely defended and many proposed to surrender it even on degrading terms so that their lives were spared godfrey and the clergy again exerted themselves successfully they ventured to challenge the turkish army to a combat of picked troops and when their proposal was spurned boldly advanced to attack the whole force the appearance of the crusaders as they marched out of the city must have been indeed pitiable privations had so reduced them that many had no clothing some were nearly fainting from weakness the barons and knights proceeded chiefly on foot and camels and asses supplied the place of horses to most of those who rode yet the burning zeal of the christians made the march seem like a triumphal procession and while the clergy sang hymns of consolation and victory the soldiers responded with a war cry it is god's will it is god's will the turkish general fearing nothing from an army so scantily provided with the means of war was taken by surprise but hastily arranged his troops in order of battle the sight of several natural prodigies such as the sudden appearance of a meteor and the favorable direction of the wind acting upon the superstitious fancy of the christians impelled them to extraordinary exertions the muslim forces on the other hand were weakened by the existence of rivalries and discords in their midst and lacked the stimulus which the christians derived from desperation the attack was commenced by a volley of arrows followed by a charge of the turkish and arabian archers which the crusaders not only steadily sustained but vigorously returned godfrey who commanded the right wing broke the left wing of the muslim but the latter had encompassed the river with a large force and attacked the christians in the rear 
In spite of the heroism of Godfrey and Tancred, who slaughtered all that ventured to compete with them, and the brave resistance of the whole army, the enemy was evidently gaining ground when, according to the historians, three horsemen in brilliant armor suddenly appeared at the head of a reinforcement descending from the adjacent mountains. Some of the clergy seized on the circumstance to reanimate the crusaders. Behold your heavenly succor, cried a bishop. Heaven has sent the holy martyrs, George, Demetrius, and Theodore, to fight for you. As he spoke, the whole army seemed inspired with irresistible strength, and shouting the well-known war cry made another vigorous charge, which broke the Muslim ranks. The Sultan of Mosul fled, and his immense force dispersed in the utmost disorder. The extravagant number of one hundred thousand is said to have fallen in this engagement. The Crusaders, instead of proceeding at once to Jerusalem, remained for several months in Antioch, employing the time in re-establishing Christianity in that city, and sending to their brethren in the west for further aid. The delay was prejudicial, as the disputes between the rival chiefs, which the din of war had silenced, again broke out, and disease committed terrible ravages in the camp. Certain expeditions, however, were made in the neighborhood, and several towns fell into the hands of the Christians. Meantime, news arrived that an army of Egyptian Arabs, who acknowledged the Fatimite caliphs, and had as yet resisted the attempt of the Turks to usurp dominion over all the followers of the Prophet, had captured Jerusalem. The crusaders, filled with indignation, resumed their march to the holy city, conquering on their way several towns. Ambassadors were sent from the Caliph of Cairo with superb presents to the Christian leaders, and proposals of peace between them and the Egyptians. But Godfrey would not be bribed to accept the humiliating terms proposed, one of which was that only unarmed Christians should be admitted into the city. The ambassadors were sent back with the answer that the crusaders were on their march, and if opposed, might extend their conquests even to the Nile. By daybreak on June 10, 1099, the Christian army came in sight of Jerusalem. The spectacle transported all with mingled feelings of joy, reverence, and remorse. Some fell on their knees and prayed. Others kissed the sacred soil, many wept for their sins, and the air ever and anon resounded with the shout, It is God's will. The siege was commenced at once, Godfrey fixing his camp on Mount Calvary. The Egyptians had prepared for protracted defense, by strengthening the fortifications and furnishing the garrison with ample provisions. They had likewise ravaged the neighboring country, and filled up the cisterns so as to harass the besiegers as much as possible. Owing to these impediments, the Christians made slow progress. After various disappointments, however, they at length manufactured engines of great size and strength, shaped like towers which were to be wheeled up to the walls, so as to enable the besiegers to enter by means of drawbridges. On July 14, 1099, at daybreak, the crusaders were in arms, and at the same moment the assault was made on various points. Godfrey stood on his wooden tower, which was stationed near one of the gates, and by voice and action stimulated his soldiers to deeds of daring. His death-dealing javelin never missed its aim. The Egyptians employed every possible agent of defense, showering down boiling oil, combustible materials, and various descriptions of missile on the heads of their assailants. During the first day, the crusaders were repulsed at every point, but on the morrow, fortune turned. The first half of the day was with the Egyptians, who cast lighted torches against the wooden engines of the crusaders and effected the destruction of many. Godfrey was, as usual, conspicuous and became the mark of repeated attacks. 
the cross of gold which surmounted his tower especially enraging the muslim an incident supposed to be supernatural was the immediate cause of the christian success godfrey and the count of toulouse at the same time observed the figure of a knight on the mount of olives who with his buckler signaled to the christians that they should enter the city the two leaders animated by a common feeling cried out behold saint george the enthusiasm of the crusaders from this moment was irresistible godfrey's tower was first pushed close beside the walls and in spite of flame and missile the drawbridge was lowered then accompanied by several of his bravest knights he dashed into the city others followed at the same point the gates were broken down and jerusalem was taken a horrible carnage of the muslim ensued in which godfrey although unable to check refused to share his first act was to retire from his comrades and with three attendants to repair unarmed and barefooted to the church of the sepulchre his vow was accomplished and the desecration of one holy site atoned for by the preservation of another yet holier this act of devotion so worthy of the true crusader recalled from carnage those who had forgotten their vows in the thirst for vengeance and the whole army led by the clergy followed him to the same church in penitential procession godfrey's work was now nearly ended and his reward came the leaders of the army soon after the capture of the city held a council for the purpose of deciding to whom should be given the crown of jerusalem no decision was arrived at so many various opinions being expressed and so many interests at stake ten of the most esteemed chiefs were then formed into an elective body and proceeded to make careful inquiries into the fitness of those who were proposed for the kingly office godfrey took no part it would seem in either discussion or inquiry and displayed no sort of anxiety as to his own claims but the clergy and the mass of the soldiers were devoted to him endeared as he was by a thousand memories of his piety courage and generosity on all hands the electors heard his praises sounded and to the joy of the whole army they concluded their labors by announcing the choice to have fallen upon him but to the surprise of all he declined the offered rank i will not wear a golden crown said he in a city where my king and saviour has been only crowned with thorns all that his fellow chiefs could persuade him to accept was the title of defender and baron of the holy sepulchre though he did not deem it right to refuse the kingly authority he soon had occasion to exert his power for the caliph of cairo had by this time collected a large army and was on his march to jerusalem the crusaders though unfitted for a fresh campaign prepared to defend their conquest and at the head of his troops godfrey advanced toward ascalon where the enemy was stationed a battle took place on the adjoining plains in which the muslim force was routed with terrific slaughter the city itself would have fallen but for the covetous spirit displayed by the count of toulouse who unable to obtain a promise that the possession of the place should be given him deserted godfrey with all his men a quarrel ensued between the two leaders but was terminated through the influence of their brothers-in-arms godfrey being ready to forgive any injury to himself for the sake of the common cause the crusade was now completed but godfrey's duties as king were yet to commence he set about fulfilling them with activity fortifying various important positions subduing revolts of hostile tribes dividing the conquered territories equally among his generals according to the feudal system and summoning an assize or assembly of his wisest counsellors to draw up a code of laws this code which long remained in operation amply testified 
to the legislative wisdom of the crusaders but the new state was not long favored with his presence to enforce and exemplify its constitution in returning from a successful expedition against some arabs of galilee he was met by the emir of caesarea who offered him a present of fruits godfrey tasted a cedar apple and immediately was seized with illness he died not without suspicion of poison having been thus administered shortly after reaching jerusalem commending to his comrades the care of the holy places and the state which he had founded his age scarcely exceeded forty years one of the most celebrated and beautiful italian poems the jerusalem delivered of tasso has the pious godfrey for the presiding hero of the glorious scenes which it narrates but there are no grounds for supposing that his fame belongs to romance rather than history contemporary writers have painted his portrait in no less flattering colors than tasso has used and the poet's affectionate fancy has scarcely exaggerated the tribute which the soberest historian may feel warranted in rendering to the memory of the great and good crusader godfrey de bouillon End of section 21